Last week, last Wednesday evening, we looked at Galatians chapter number 5, the ending verses, and we're going to continue this week where we left off last week. We were in Galatians chapter 5, today we're going to be in Galatians chapter number 6, and we're just going to read one verse tonight to begin. I initially planned on, on preaching through several verses tonight. But as is often the case, the more I studied and really digged into it, I, re I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get that far. And so we're just going to look at one verse tonight. Verse number one, Galatians chapter six. This is what we see. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I want to look tonight at this matter first of being overtaken by a fault. And then I want to look at the requirements of the, the, the people who will restore the one who's been overtaken by the fault. We have some who are overtaken, and then we have a command to restore those that have been overtaken by the fault. Let's pray, and we'll ask God to bless our study and to open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of his law. Lord, we're grateful to be in church tonight. We're grateful to have your word, and it's so full of truth, and it's so easy to miss something from it. God, I pray tonight that you would help us just to focus, just to focus our minds, attention on your word, on truth, and we pray, Lord, that we would allow the Spirit of God to, to speak through your word, to us, to teach us, to instruct us, and to rebuke us, to chastise us, Lord, and just to help us to, God, to repent tonight of where we need to repent, to turn to you, that our lives would be forever changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This phrase, overtaken in a fault, in verse number one, implies an element of surprise. If you study out this, this word, overtaken, it means to, that, that you're caught off guard by something. That you, you sort of, it's not a continual, ongoing, perpetual rebellion in, in a person's heart. But rather, it's, it's a, perhaps a, a, a momentary lapse of judgment where we would stumble onto or rather we would give in to sinful des desires. A man is overtaken by a fault, by some sin. Last week we looked at the comparison between the spiritual person in, in uh, Galatians chapter 5 with the fleshly person, with the self-filled person. The spiritual person puts the desires of the Lord first. He follows, he walks in the spirit. The fleshly person is all about self. What do I want? What gratifies me? What's good for me? But it's possible for a person, even a person who wants to walk in the Spirit, a saved person who, who wants to live right, who wants to live for the Lord, it's possible even for that person to slip into sin, to fall into sin, to unawares find himself in the middle of a place where he never thought he would be. Satan is referred in 1 Peter to a roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may devour. In Ephesians 6.11, we're told to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. 
those wiles of the devil are, are the things that the, the devil puts in before us and in front of us to deceive us, to catch us off guard, to trap us, to entangle us. Hunters and trappers do the same for animals. I asked Justin to bring along a, a, a trap tonight, something that he would use to, to trap some poor, unknowing animal. And he brought this. He offered to leave it open for me, but knowing my luck, it wouldn't have been a good situation. But trappers will put out these traps, all different kinds of traps, hoping to catch an animal off guard, hoping to catch some poor creature, not paying attention, just going about life, frolicking with his friends, and they're going to catch them just like that. It's terrible. That's why the language of the Bible is so clear that we're to be vigilant because Satan is the same. He's always looking about, setting traps for us, setting wiles for us, hoping to catch some Christian, not paying attention, not aware, not being vigilant, and we'll find ourselves just like that poor animal trapped and not sure what to do with ourselves. We were at my brother's house this past weekend, and Lauren, my wife, is always concerned when she doesn't know where the youngest children are. But she's especially concerned about that when we're at my brother's house because he has an in-ground pool. And she looks at that pool like it's a trap for children. She doesn't like it. And anytime we're out and about and the kids are outside by the pool, we're constantly telling them, stop running, don't run around the pool. And it's not because we're just afraid that they're going to fall and skin their knee. We could care less about that. But it's because we don't want them to end up in the pool. They'll run around not paying attention, not thinking about where they are in one wrong step, and they're in the pool. And then I have to jump in, and nobody wants that. So we're trying to avoid that. These are unaware. People fall into these traps unaware. So that's the predicament. Being ensnared in one of Satan's traps. So what's the process of getting out of that? Verse number one says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, caught unawares, caught in one of these sins, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. Believers who fall into sin need to be restored. The same word for restore here was also used in Mark chapter 1 and verse 19 when James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were out mending their nets. It's the idea of taking something that has been taken out of order, ripped, torn, pulled apart, and putting it back in order. It's mending the nets. It's also used for a, a bone that's been broken, fractured, that needs to be put back together. Mended, restored. Things that, that have been taken from where they should be to where they ought to be. It means to set in order, which implies that sometimes the process can be painful, right? having a bone set back in. And this term, to restore, is anything but a, a passive term. A child, if a child falls into a pool, if a bone, a bone is broken, if a net is torn, if a, an animal is caught in a trap, none of these things are going to fix themselves. They have to be fixed by someone. They have to be restored. The net has to be mended. The child has to be brought out. The, the animal has to be released from the trap. They, it requires action. Somebody has to set things back to where they should be. So we looked at the predicament, which was this person who gets caught in the sin. 
the, 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 the process is getting them out of it. The restoration. And thirdly, the personnel. Who, who is to be the restorer? Who is to go in and help this Christian who has been trapped, who has been caught in a trap, who has been unawares, put in this predicament? Who is responsible to do that? And if I had a mirror for every person, I would pass it out to each one of you, and I would say, now take a long look in this mirror, because the person that you see in the mirror is the person who is responsible to restore the brothers and sisters in Christ who have been trapped in this way, each of us. Notice the salutation at the beginning of the verse. Brethren, we're a family. We're a family. And as the family of God, we are to restore people who have been broken, who have been hurt, who have slipped and fallen, who have strayed away. It's our responsibility as the family of God to put, put things back, put people back in the place where they're supposed to be. So yes, we are our brother's keeper, if you ever wondered about that. We don't want siblings to be destroyed. And so when our brothers and our sisters are drifting away, as we heard in the song just a moment ago, it's our responsibility as their brother and as this sister to go out and to find them and to bring them in to where they ought to be. That may not be the way your family works, but that's the way that the family of God is to work. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. So we're all to be restorers of fallen family, each of us. Every single one of us, if you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, you are to be a restorer of other Christians. You're responsible to do it. Now, there are some requirements to be a restorer, and that's what we're going to look at for the remainder of the time from our from our text. Because, let's be honest, we've all tried fixing people before and probably been unsuccessful. You've seen people who needed fixing. You've tried to fix them and you've been unsuccessful in doing that. So let's see what the Bible has to say. I'm going to give five requirements for the restorer. Five requirements to restore as we should. And each of us are, are to be restorers. Five guidelines. Number one, the restorer must be spiritual. Back to verse one. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. In order to restore somebody that's been overtaken, somebody who's been overtaken in sin, the requirement is that we must be spiritual. If someone allows the flesh to win to the point that he's overcome with this sin, the spiritual among us are to seek them out, to find them, and to free them from the entrapment that they're in. So what does it mean to be spiritual? First, let me say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're some kind of a super Christian. It doesn't mean that we run around, we have superpowers, and we run around with a, a giant S on our shirt. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we're without fault. It doesn't mean that we're without sin. It doesn't mean that we're without struggles. It doesn't mean that we're without temptation, because if it meant that, then none of us would be qualified to go out and to find people that have strayed and restore them. It doesn't mean that you're a pastor. It doesn't even mean that you're a preacher to be spiritual. 
the command from the Lord through Paul here was to none of those. It was just to the spiritual. So who qualifies as a spiritual person? And to get the answer to that, we just have to look back a few verses where we left off last Wednesday night because the Apostle Paul tells us a definition of the spiritual person. Look back in verse or chapter number 5 and verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. By the way, the fruit of the Spirit, as we talked about last week, is the fruit of a Spirit-filled person. The, 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 the one who's walking in the spirit. We might say, we could say, the fruit of the spiritual person is this. This is what will be the result of somebody who is a spiritual person. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Who is qualified to be a restorer of the fallen? The one who's exhibiting love. The one who's exhibiting faith. The one who's exhibiting self-control. The one who's exhibiting patience. These are the people who are qualified to help others. They're not superhuman qualities. They're simply the fruit of Christians allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us to be who he is. And they're qualities and characteristics that should be characteristic of every single Christian. That's the command. That's the requirement. There's no leniency in Scripture to be saved and to be carnal, which is the opposite of spirituality. That, that's not okay. There's no, there's no leniency for that. There, there's, that's not okay. We are all, as Christians, to be spiritual people. And all of us, when he says, when Paul says, if a man's overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, he ought to be talking to every single member of this church. He ought to be. Spirituality is the opposite of carnality. It's the opposite of flesh. It's the opposite of the self-life. It's the opposite of everything that we see in verses 19 through 22, or 19 through 21 of Galatians chapter 5. Fornication and adultery and wrath and anger and strife and all of these things that, are, that, that, that just show our flesh. It's the opposite of all of that. Now, don't write yourself off from this verse because you don't think that you're spiritual. Don't, as you read verse 1, you which are spiritual restored, don't write yourself off and say, well, I, that's a great verse, that's so true, we need spiritual people like that that can go out and find those that are falling and bring them in. Don't write yourself off because you're not spiritual because all of us must be spiritual in order to be obedient to the Lord. Every Christian can be Spirit-filled. Every Christian can be spirit-led. Every Christian can walk in the spirit. We're required to do that. But if you're not spiritual, then you have no business trying to help everybody else. If you're not a spiritual person, then you have no business going out and trying to fix other people's problems. Your responsibility is to look in the mirror and say, God, I am not who I need to be. I want to be a spiritual man. I want to be a spiritual woman. I want to help others, but how can I help them? Look at my problems. God, for, forgive me of my sin. Repent of your sin, and then you'll be the spiritual man that is required to go out and to help other people. Don't say this is not for me because I'm not spiritual, but also don't forget about being spiritual and just try to go fix everybody's problems. No, let's get right with God first, and then we can obey what he has to say to us. What Paul is writing about here is not judgmentalism. It's seeking to restore those that Satan has beat down and tricked and deceived and hurt. The restorer has to be spiritual. 
If you're not walking in the Spirit, don't try to fix somebody else. First, work on you. If a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. The spirit of meekness really encompasses two things. It's, it's gentleness, but it's also humility. We're going to consider humility first. The restorer must be humble. When a brother or sister backslides, our first inclination may be to judge them, to condemn them, but really it ought to be a time for inner soul searching, looking into the perfect law of liberty. And when we do that and we see our own sinfulness, humility will be a natural outflow of that. When we condemn other people for their sins, what we're really doing is acting like the Pharisees acted who would clean up the outside and say, as though everything was okay, and then they would feel that they had the right to condemn other people. But when we do that, we disqualify ourselves from biblical restoration. Look, look ahead in verse 3. We're not going to spend any time on this, but I just want you to see this verse. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. If we ever try to restore somebody with the attitude like, I've got this figured out, I've got this, we're doing it in the wrong spirit. We're doing it in the wrong attitude. Jesus had no place for the self-righteous Pharisees, no place whatsoever. They were full of evil inside. Our, our, our job is not to be the righteous police who sit up on a tower and look out and try to, and try to see everybody's problems so that we can fix it for them. That's not our, that's not our job. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus was talking about those people who had the beam in their eye. Remember the beam? And he said, and he said to them, what, what are you doing looking and, and, and criticizing and even noticing the speck that's in your brother's eye when you've got this giant beam in your eye? And then in verse 5 of Matthew 7, he says, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then... Thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. He doesn't tell him not, he doesn't say just ignore the mote, ignore the speck. If your friend's got something in his eye, it's okay. Let him live with it. But what he says is first, take care of that giant beam that you got sticking out of your head. And once you, can, once you do that, then you can actually see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Whenever somebody slips into sin, our attitude Toward them. When we see somebody slipping into sin, our attitude ought to be that of, of heartbreak and sadness and sorrow rather than condemnation. It ought to drive us to our knees. But we can be so cynical, can't we? We can see somebody in sin and we can be so quick to cast judgment, so quick to, to, so quick to, to judge them for what they're doing. When in reality, if we would just look in the mirror, we would realize that, that but for the grace of God, we would be in a much worse place even than they are. The restorer must be humble. Humble. Number three, the restorer must be gentle. I really believe that if we would approach this in humility, we would, the, the, natural, the natural next step would be gentleness. If we're going to mend a wound, we have to do so gently. If an animal is stuck in a trap, we can't just rip the leg out. It's not like a band-aid where you just want to do it quick and fast. 
When it comes to restoring a brother or sister who's been caught in sin, we have to have the same gentle approach. Our love for our brothers and sisters drives us to, to want to see somebody never get caught in the trap, but when they do, then we must, have a, we must gently go to them and, and gently, with meekness and, and humility, try to restore them without doing perfect, uh, permanent damage. And I believe all of this begins with prayer. Trusting God to use you, walking in the Spirit, so that I'm not going to say the things that I would naturally say, because myself will say things that he should not say. And so I have to rely on the Holy Spirit to, to, to enable me to say things that he would say. To, to, to not speak my words, but to speak his words. Not to be quick, but to be slow. And our goal is not to fix them, not to, but to help them. To encourage them, to heal them, to mend them, to restore them to where they ought to be. Whenever... Shortly after we got our, our dog, Roscoe, um, he was outside one night. He, he was an outside dog when we got him, but that only lasted a couple of weeks, and then he became an inside dog. And um, during that time when he was an outside dog, we, we had him on this um, wire, one of these cords that you get for dogs, 20 feet long or something, and it's, it's, it's wire with like a plastic coating on it. And... He was, he was outside one night, and, and the next morning, I woke up, and I went out, and I heard Roscoe, and he was obviously very sad. He was just yelping and hurting, and I could tell he was hurting, and I, so I went out to him and noticed that he had been tangled up. His leg was, one leg was really tangled up in this wire, and he was hurting really bad, and the, his leg was swollen and red and just kind of bloody, and just, it was, it was, it looked bad, and so I began trying to untangle his, his leg. I began trying to untangle his, his foot. And what I noticed is as I tried to untangle his foot, he wasn't, he wasn't enjoying that very much. Because even though he was in great pain before, as I began to work on his foot, that actually hurt him more. He was in more pain as I was trying to untangle him than he was when he was just caught. And he didn't like me doing that. Right? He, didn't, he didn't enjoy it. In fact, if, if, if I could have talked to him, if we could have had a, a man-to-dog conversation, and I would have said, Roscoe, do you want me just to leave you alone? He probably would have said, yes, please, and leave it. you're hurting me bad. Right? And so I could have just thrown my hands up and said, you know what? That's fine. I tried to help you. You didn't want help. That's fine. I'm just going to walk away. If you never walk again, that's on you. I did my part. I tried. You're yelping. That's fine. Right? I could have done that. And, and, I, and I fear... I fear that that's sometimes what we do with people. We go try to help them through, through a situation that they're in. They've fallen, they've, str they've struggled, they've stumbled. We go try to help them. They resist our help, and we throw our hands up, and, 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 and we say, fine, I tried to help you. you don't, obviously, you don't want my help. I, you don't, that's fine. You're on your own now. But you know what? Even though he didn't want my help that night, that morning, he needed my help. And even though people may not want our help, they need our help, and it may hurt, just like a bone. When a bone is broken, if you've ever had a bone broken and gone to the hospital, they have to put it back in order. They have to set it. They have to reset it. And if you've ever been through that, it's a very painful experience. Some bones, I'm sure, are more painful than others, but it's a necessary experience. It's something we don't want to go through, but we have to go through it. The process of setting a bone is painful. 
The process of restoration is painful. The process of getting out of the trap that we're in can be painful. And so don't be surprised when you try to help somebody and they resist you. Don't be surprised when they push away a little bit and they say, just leave me alone. I don't, I don't want to go through that. It can be a painful process, but it's a necessary process. It may hurt a little bit, but we're to go, we're to, we're to go gently. We're not to be, we're not to, some of our attitudes are, are anything but gentle naturally. Some of us, or some of us, some of us to speak our mind, we're straight to, to the point strong, this is the way it is, but that's not always the way it should be. That's not always the way that Christ would speak through us. In the spirit of meekness, we're to restore one another. Gentleness, humility. So the restorer has to be spiritual. He has to be humble. He has to be gentle. Number four, the restorer must be cautious. Look again in verse 1, chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual. Hopefully that's all of us. Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. This is one of the reasons that there's a requirement to be spiritual, so that we'll not be drawn into sin ourselves. The closer we get to sin, the more prone we are to give in to that sin. When you're around sin, you're more prone to give in to that sin. If you have a friend who's consumed with bitterness, and they're so consumed and, and, and just ate up with it, and you get around them trying to restore them, and all you hear is that negativity, constant negativity, bitterness, gossip, coming at you all the time, there is a tendency for you to be drawn into that, to, to take on that bitterness on your, of your own, on your own. We've seen that before. You, you want to help them, you want to help them, but if you do it not, not in the spirit, but you do it in the flesh, you try to help them in the flesh, and you're, you're around all that negativity and criticism and bitterness and gossip, then you can be drawn into that, and that can take over your spirit as well. And that's why Paul said, you which are spiritual, in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, be cautious, lest you also are tempted, lest you fall into the very same trap that the friend you were trying to save fell into. It can happen. It can happen. He must be cautious. And again, it drives us to our knees and say, and say God, I know that I'm, I, just as he went into sin, I can go into sin. I want to help them. The command is there. I, I, he's my brother. I have to help him. I cannot see him in that predicament. I must go help him. And yet I know, but for the grace of God, I can be pulled into the very same thing. And so we, it ought to drive us to our knees and say, God, help me. Help me help him. Help me to go in and say the right things. Help me to go in the right spirit. Help me to go in the spirit of humility and, and meekness and gentleness. And God, protect me. Protect me from that trap. Protect me from that Sin. He has to be cautious, discerning. He has to be wise, prudent, on high alert. On high alert all the time. Number five, the restorer must be compassionate. I save this for last because if, a, if you're not compassionate, then none of this, else, none of, none of this really matters because you're not going to make the effort to try to restore a brother or sister anyway. But when an animal is caught in a trap, it's nearly impossible for him to get out by himself. 
That's the point of a trap. Justin brought this to me tonight, and he gave, he gave me another one that has a stake. It has a stake, and you drive that into the ground so that when somebody, so that when some animal gets trapped in this, they can't pull this along with them. They're, 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 they're stuck, and they're not going anywhere. That's the point of a trap, to keep them where they are, to keep them from going anywhere else. They're made so that not only will they catch this poor creature off guard and trap him, but they're made so he cannot get out. And so it is with the follower of Christ who falls into sin. We frequently need somebody to help us out of our predicament. When he strays into sin, he needs somebody to, to come down and to, to pry open those, those claws and to, to gently lift that, that, that limb out of there. He needs someone to untangle him. He can't do it alone often. Take your Bibles, if you would, and, and, and turn to the book of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. This is never more clear than it is in Luke chapter 10. This is the telling of the story of the great Samaritan, the good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. We see no reason here that this, anything that this man did wrong, no sin that he committed, but he was, he was making this trip and he, he went among some thieves, and they stripped him, they wounded him, they beat him, left him half dead. He's in bad shape. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. This would seem like good news. A priest was walking along. It's a miracle. But when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. No compassion, no concern. He, he did see him. He did see him. But he just kept walking. Didn't even get close enough to get a good look at him. And likewise, verse 32, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Same thing as the Levite. He saw him. He looked at him. Didn't even, didn't even cross the road for him. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, journeyed came where he was. He got up close. And when he saw him, he had... What? Compassion. Had compassion on him. What did that compassion cause him to do? Did it cause him to keep walking? Did it cause him to run away? Verse 34, the compassion caused him to go to him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed... He took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. What is it that would cause somebody to see a, a perfect stranger on the road, beaten, bloodied, to get off of his beast, to walk over, get close to him, wrap up his wounds, Put him on his, his, his bloody body up on his own horse. 
take him to the inn, take out money out of his own pocket, pay the night at the inn, tell the innkeeper whatever he, whatever he requires, take care of him, I'll take care of it. Knowing that he's, he's never going to be repaid for this, knowing that he's maybe never even going to be thanked for this, maybe this man never even knows that the Good Samaritan did it. Never even knew who took care of him. What would cause a person to do that? Compassion. Compassion caused him to go where he was and do something about it. The cynical man, the priest, the Levite, we don't know what went through their mind. Maybe they looked at him and said, that guy, I'm sure he got what was coming to him. I'm sure he was trying to pick a fight with somebody. I'm sure he des- whatever he got, I'm sure he deserved it. That's what the cynical person says. That's what we can often say about people, can't we? Well, they just got what's coming to them. I've tried to help them before. I've went out of my way, and they don't listen. Maybe if he wouldn't hang around that crowd, maybe if he would have not hang around that guy all the time, like I told him, he wouldn't be in this predicament. That's what the priest would say. That's what the Levite would say. But the Samaritan saw where he was, had compassion on him, and then did something about it. The world passes people by. The world kicks them when they're down. The world is cynical. The world condemns. The world casts judgment. The world scoffs and says, there she goes again. I'm not surprised she's off into that sin again. That's just what she does. But that's not what God's people do. That's not what spirit-filled people do. Not the family of God. I love what James said. James 5.19, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. There's so much in the Bible about this matter of compassion. Think about John chapter 8 when the woman was caught in adultery. And there are really three groups in this story. There's the the woman, of course, who who was caught in adultery. There were the men who brought them to Jesus, and then there was, there, was, there was Jesus himself. And so you've got one group of people who sees her committing this sin. She's a known sinner. She, she's caught in her sin, and their first action, their first action is to drag her to the city center where Jesus is and say, <laughs> look what she's done. Look what she's done. Expose her, Jesus. Condemn her. Judge her. That's one group. And then you've got the people that are all standing around, and they're ready with stones in hand. They're ready. They, they see her coming, and they say, now it's her chance. Now it's our chance to give her what she deserves. She's been an eyesore in this community her whole life. And now she's back at it again. Finally, she's caught. And now we've got our chance. Now we can really fix this problem. they got stones in hand ready to throw them at her to kill her. And then we've got Jesus, who has compassion on this woman who nobody else has compassion on. He's willing and ready to forgive her and to heal her and to mend her. He, he wants to mend her life, to put her back together. And so I ask, which one are you? Where do we fit in there? Whenever you see somebody in sin, what's your first, what's your first thought? Is it man? Just wait till everybody finds out what he did. Just wait. <laughs> finally. Finally, this is out in the open. Is that it? 
Is it, are you picking up rocks to condemn? Are you, are you ready to throw and say, now she's going to get what she deserves? Or are you, like Jesus, say, what can, what can, what can I do to, to, to heal this? How can, I, how can I fix this? She is broken. She is broken and she needs a healer. And what role can I have in that? I want to be a restorer. I want to restore her. The restorer has to be spiritual. It has to be spiritual. If you try to fix somebody in your own flesh, you're just going to mess everything up worse. You're going to do more damage. The restorer must be humble, understanding that I've sinned, I will sin, but for the grace of God, I'd be where you are. I'm no better than you. I'm not looking down in judgment at you, but rather I'm getting down like the like the man in John um, or in Matthew's gospel, getting down and healing the wounds. I'm here with you. I'm gonna. I want to help you. Must be humble. A the restorer must be gentle, gentle, understanding that this is a delicate time in your life. This is a delicate time. You're trapped. You're caught. You're hurting. You're in great pain. This is. We come not harshly, but gently, with meekness. The restorer must be cautious, knowing that we put ourselves in danger sometimes by trying to help other people. Consider thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We must be discerning. And the restorer must be compassionate. Now let me close with this. It may be that you find yourself tonight in a seemingly impossible situation. Maybe you're caught. Maybe your, your, your leg is caught in the trap. And you've tried to get out, but it's like everything you, you do, it, there's just no way out. You're, you're stuck, and you're hurting, and you're in great pain. And there, As much as you try, as much as you pull away, it just hurts more, and it seems like you get caught deeper and deeper. The more you twist and turn, the more that cable gets wrapped tighter and tighter around your leg, and you just can't seem to get out. And I want to say tonight to you that there is a way out. And it's not to, it's not to twist and turn or run faster. It's not to, just to, to pull harder. The way to get out is through the power of God. And God often uses people to mend those broken bones. God uses people. God uses Christians. God uses the, the people of God, the family of God, the church of God. Brothers, brethren, if you see somebody, you are to be the restorers. That's the point. And so if you're the one that needs to be rescued tonight, if you're the one that needs to be mended tonight, then I want to just say there is hope. There is hope in God. But you also may need to reach out for help. You also may need to extend an arm and say, I need help. I'm in a place right now, and I'm hurting and I'm, I'm so messed up in sin right now, and I just cannot seem to break loose from these addictions that I'm in. I'm, I'm just, it's, it's consuming me, and I want to be free from it, and I can't be free from it. And you may need to humble yourself enough to reach out and to, and to say to somebody in this room, I need help. I need help. Don't be afraid to ask. And maybe you're in the group that says, I want to be... A restorer. I know that I should be. I know that this verse was written to me, but I don't, I don't think I'm qualified. I'm not spiritual enough. I got my own sin problems. 
then tonight the answer is not just to say this is not for me. The answer is to say I'm going to tonight get before God. I'm going to come to this altar in my seat. I'm going to repent of the sin that's been weighing me down. I'm going to repent of the things that have been keeping me from being the restorer of others that I ought to be. And tonight, I'm going to, tonight with, with God's help, I'm going to repent of my sin. I'm going to, I'm going to turn I'm going to walk in the spirit from here on out, and I'm going, to be the, I'm going to be the one that's going to be there for everybody. They don't have to always be there for me. I'm going to be there for them. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. That's what the Bible says. Tonight, I hope all of us, I hope all of us tonight will, will decide to be like that Samaritan. Not judgmental, not, not condemning like the priest, like the Levite who just walks by who says, I told you so, I, I always knew. But the one that says, here before me is an opportunity. Someone who is hurting, someone who is broken, someone who needs to be put back together. A bone that is broken that needs to be set back in place. A, a net that is torn that needs to be mended. She is not how she should be. And, and I know, because I know that she's a believer, that she doesn't want to be there. And so I'm going to go out of my way I'm gonna, and in humility, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out of my way to try to help her, to try to help him. And at first, they may reject. It's possible. But if someone is genuinely a child of God, then, then he or she does not want to be entrapped in the snares of sin. They're not where they want to be. They're not happy. I hope we'll be like this Samaritan. It's not easy the world is so critical. The world is so negative. I mean, if you talk to anybody, it's just constant negativity and criticism about everyone and everything. And if you're, if you're not careful, then you're going to be, begin to be consumed with the very same thing that frustrates you about everybody else. Their negativity and their judgmentalism and their condemnation. You get around it long enough and it starts to consume you. But this should not be characteristic of God's people. We're to be healers. We understand that God is the one who will do, ultimately do the healing, but he uses us. Tonight, let's decide tonight. Let's decide tonight. Whatever's holding me back, I'm, gonna, I'm going to begin looking for opportunities not to see people in their sin, but to find people who are struggling. Find people who have, way, who have wandered off the, the path and to, in, in love and humility and gentleness, go to them and seek restoration for them. And if they push back a little bit, I'm not going to get frustrated with them and say, that's fine, I'm washing my hands of this, but rather I'm going to pray more. I'm going to rely more on God, and I'm going to go to them again, and I'm going to say, I, I just want to help you. I know that you don't want to live in the sin that you're living in because you're a Christian. I know you don't want to be here, but I just want you to know that I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm going to help you. I know you're all wrapped up, but I, and it's going to hurt, but I'm, I'm going to be the one that's going to, that's going to pray with you, that's going to help unwrap this, that's going, to take this, that's going to take this trap off of you. And maybe today you're not ready to, to come out, but when you're ready, I'm here for you. When you're ready to get right, I'm here for you. That's every single one of our jobs as Christians and as members of this church to be restorers for one another. None of us are exempt. And I hope that tonight you'll decide. You'll decide to do your part. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for the, the mercy that you show to us. And, and Lord, I just, 
want to come to you in repentance for the time that we spend with wrong attitudes, with eyes of condemnation and, and words of judgment, rather than, than spirit-filled, gentle, humble prayers before you. God, I pray that tonight we would repent of the sins that have been keeping us from, from walking in the Spirit as we're commanded to do. Lord, forgive us for, for the idolatry that's been in our hearts and for the lust of the flesh that's been consuming us, that's been keeping us, Lord, from walking in the Spirit as we ought to. Forgive us, God. I pray that each of us would come to you with a sincere heart of repentance. And Lord, I just pray that as a church body, we would decide tonight to be restorers, to find those who have been overtaken in a fault, to be patient with them, to be honest with them, Lord, but to be humble, to see them and see them with eyes of compassion. And Lord, I pray that as we obey your command here in Galatians 6.1, Lord, that it would be a difference maker in our church, that people who have been tangled up in the webs of sin, Lord, would, would, would gain freedom. The people who have been walking in the flesh would begin walking in the spirit. God, would you use your word to make a difference in us tonight?